Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosso. It gives me great pleasure to welcome on the beginning of the 2024 year, uh, Frank Marinko, Executive Coach Melbourne, back to Viewpoints. Uh, our themes are perspectives, and uh, in today's uh, episode, we're going to be talking about what Frank describes as big, B-I-G, assumptions. Sounds fascinating. But firstly, welcome again, uh, Frank, to uh, Viewpoints. Gee, Henry, it's great to be back with you. Um, I wasn't too sure whether I'd make it back after a real midlife scare with cancer last year, but um, it really is fabulous to be back. Good to be alive. And today we're going to chat about a subject that most people rarely investigate. But under investigation, it reveals a great deal about our mental machine with an immune system that prevents any real change in our lives. That uh, sounds fascinating, Frank. A mental machine with an immune system which prevents change in our lives. What happens when uh, when we run this machine? Good question, Henry. <laughs> you know, when we run this mental machine, it produces big assumptions. And the reason I call it big assumptions is that we don't take this big assumption as an assumption, which is something whose truth status is uncertain, we take it as the truth. We believe, that is, we take it as unquestionably so, just like water's wet, tables are hard, or if we confront someone, they'll be angry or upset, and, well, it'll simply be the end of the world. We don't hold our beliefs about conflict or how people feel about us or whether we remain in control as mere assumptions. We hold them as the truth. So an assumption taken as the truth are what I refer to as big assumptions. They're not so much an assumption that we have as they are an assumption that has us. So the work that we've done as coaches around these big assumptions of our clients leads us to be deeply empathetic because most people are carrying on about as bravely and effectively as they can in their world of assumptive designs operating dysfunctionally, destructively, or self-destructively. Fascinating, Frank. Now, now, a question. Now, if, if we are certain in our minds that we know how the world works, why is it important to look for a, a different reality then? That existential question, Henry, that's a $64 question. You know, <laughs> the circumstance of being so attached to our perspectives that we take it for reality itself is as difficult for kids as it is for adults, perhaps even more so for adults. Um, and if you don't mind the liberty, no. it reminds me of a joke about different realities. Go for it. All right. So one morning, a mother was getting breakfast for her son on a school day, and she didn't hear any signs of readiness coming from his bedroom. So she went down the corridor to see what was going on, found his door locked. So she calls out, are you okay, son? And she heard back, I'm fine, but it was defiant. And he says, I'm just not going to school today. And he said, well, said the mother, how about you give me three good reasons why you don't want to go to school today? Well, he said, I don't like school. The teachers don't like me and I'm afraid of the kids. That's three good reasons. Mm. And she says, now I'm going to give you three good reasons why you should go to school today. First, I'm your mother. 
And I say school's important. Second, you're 53 years of age. And third, you're the principal of the school. (laughs) Yes, yes. You can't see that coming, actually. And the point that I make is that it's really difficult for us to leave home at any age. We refer to home, as I'm talking about, is our established habits of mind, which we furnish and make familiar and leave only very warily. Mm. Oh, that's, a, that's a very good joke because halfway through that, uh, Frank, um, my mind is thinking of him as the child at school, not, not the principal. And, uh, and it's, uh, the reality is different to that reality is different, the external one to my internal one, which then, of course, means I look at it differently. But anyway, so what you're saying, Frank, is that it's difficult to separate ourselves from our perspective so uh, that even if our perspective does change, we may be inclined to feel that it is the world rather than our way of looking at the world that has changed. Would be so? Spot on, Henry. Unfortunately... Much of what goes on under the banner of professional development amounts to helping uh, is to develop more skills or capacities to cope, but it's to cope within the world of our assumptive design. So the design of our assumptions is never even questioned or, or visible. So we have to work with our clients outside the world of their assumptive design so that we can look at the very principle by which the design itself was shaped. But, but- Frank, why should this investigation be so difficult? It sounds fairly straightforward and logical. You know, looking at our assumption amounts to uncoupling reality from the way of shaping reality. So it amounts to considering that our perspectives are not necessarily the same as the thing itself. And as Aldous Huxley so beautifully put it, Mm. our experience is not what happens to us. But what we make of what happens to us. Mm. So, Frank, if we do make contact with one of our uh, own inner contradictions and big assumptions, as you put it, what difference or effect might there be on our own meaning, making and future behaviour? Here's the, the bottom line, Henry. I would expect that there would be no effect, none whatsoever, unless you take some kind of action to protect or preserve your relationship to these potentially transformative issues. Like in the absence of supportive action, most people will tend to come away even from this conversation thinking, hmm, that was really interesting or provocative. I need to think more about that tomorrow. And, you know, there's uh, that famous quote by St. Augustine, which was quoted as saying, give me strength, O Lord, to live a purer life, but not just yet. Mm, that's, a, that's, that's very sobering. So what do we need to do to stay in relationship to these ideas, Frank? Well, without beating my own drum, Henry, you know, we need coaches or colleagues to help us remember to keep present at the door the troubling ideas that tempt us out of our bedrooms of our established habits of mind so that we can be in relationship with them. So our experience with groups is this. People are engaged in repression. It's purposeful forgetting because remembering is going to cause trouble with their immunity to change and may force them from the bedroom of an established mind. So they need coaches and colleagues and willing partners they can talk to whom they can listen to and who will listen to them. 
Mm-hmm. So, Frank, um, is there a process or steps that one person can follow to get ourselves, as you put it, out of our bedrooms of an established mind? Again, Henry, good question. Yeah, we find that there generally are four steps. The first step, or step one, is to observe ourselves in relation to our big assumptions. So let others in on the big assumptions and the inner contradictions and just become better observers of ourselves when we're held by these big assumptions. You know, keep track of what does or doesn't occur as a consequence of a big assumption And then we can have a laugh with someone and appreciate the truthful and these familiar depictions of who we really are in all of our complicated glory. Step two, we actively look for experiences that cast doubt on our big assumptions. So we don't try and change any of our thinking yet, but just be vigilant for any experiences that cast doubt on the truthfulness of our big assumptions. And if you're constantly on the lookout for evidence that's a generalization, which you now see to be disprovable by even a single counter instance, discuss these specimens with your coach or your colleague. And so the third step is to explore the history of your big assumptions. So, you know, as I'm asking these questions, I'm going to ask you to have a think about these because after Mm. I've talked about mine, I was wondering if something comes up for you. So with some of your big assumptions, when was it born? How long have you lived with this assumption? Where do you think it got its start? What early and not recently examined foundation does it rest on? And how satisfactory a foundation does this now seem to be in your present day? Ah, that's pretty good. Can I start by asking you, Frank, to give us an example of a big assumption of yours? Oh, yeah. Look, Henry, there's one that has plagued me since I was a child. You know, the big assumption of mine was not being important. And it was created by me as a sick child with asthma. And there was one night I was left overnight in a country hospital. My parents were immigrants who both worked and needed their jobs, so they had to get back to home, you know, 200 Mm. kilometres away. My father dealt with frustration and helplessness by being angry. So I made assumptions about not being important, being abandoned, being weak, and I also made up that all of those things also made my father very angry at me. So, you know, big assumptions often got their start a long time ago, long before people's current jobs, Mm. and usually long before they became grown up. They usually get their start in families of origin where we were little people with little power and the world in which we were seeking to thrive was actually largely defined by our family. So how about you, Henry? Can you see a big assumption that you've lived through as if it were the truth since you were a kid, moulded by your parents possibly, and now we could even think of exploring it? Mm, Yeah, absolutely, Frank. Um, Probably two parts to my big assumption. One, of course, is, um, is my parents and my father in particular. And the other one is being um, a non-English speaking background migrant kid in the early 50s from Europe. Those two things, I think, have moulded my big assumption that um, I've, I've probably battled with for most of my life and um, at times it's probably 
caused me more grief than than good. And that is, one, not good enough, and two, an outsider. Um, And and the not good enough came from... uh, Really, I think my, my, my father who and mother who came here as migrants, they came from well-educated backgrounds in Europe and they saw coming here as an opportunity for their children. <coughs> mm. And my father always said, education, education is the key to life and success. And I was fortunate enough to have, um, I guess, through my genetic background, some, some smart genes and... Uh, so I was always able to get very, very good marks in, in, in all of the subjects except music and art at school without trying too hard. And, of mm. course, my reports always said Henry's results are very good, but they could be better. And my father um, always pushed me on, uh, you, could, you could do better, son, you can do better. And he did it with good meaning. However, I always felt that... Um, I wasn't good enough for my father. And, of course, I was interpreting it from that perspective. So I had this feeling of not being good enough. Being a migrant kid in the 50s, um, in all honesty, wasn't the most fun thing to be uh, in Australia because um, you sort of felt, you know, as you know, we were all called wogs and dagos and God knows what. And those things hurt. And, of course, coming from a... Polish German, but it was the German side of me. Uh, that wasn't a good thing in the fifties and sixties either, because there was still the post Second World War um, feelings so about, I, so about. I suppose you were a Kraut and a Nazi, were you as well? Yeah, Kraut, Jerry, Can, Nazi, Adolf, all those things. And of course, yeah. the fact that my father was Polish um, didn't seem to count because uh, they didn't know much about the Polish, and so I was a bit conflicted. And so I guess out of all of that, Frank. Um, I spent an inordinate uh, amount of energy on trying to, A, prove myself to my father as I went through life and um, also um, recoiling a little bit and being suspicious of people because of this outsider status. And uh, the, the, the one benefit I had was I was also probably like you, not too bad at sport and uh, sport's a good thing to be good at in Australia and so that was always my ticket entree into society but of course then I wouldn't be studying hard enough for my father so I was either pleasing the locals by being a good sporting person and not my dad because I wasn't studying and doing well but could have done better or if I did that and didn't play sport then I'd be on the outer with my mates. So I was sort of in a difficult spot and it, it all came about because I thought I wasn't good enough or that I was shunned as an outsider. Amazing, isn't it, Henry? How as kids we create these assumptions and then we're compensating for something that wasn't real but we live as though it's real and a lot of people spend the rest of their lives compensating for something that was never real but they don't realise it's real. So through the work that we do, we recognise the big assumptions may have been true in an earlier world as a child, a little person, Mm. and may even be true in some context in our current world, but the foundation upon which it rests is no longer appropriate to the present day. You know, my being not important, um, also being abandoned and being weak and my dad being angry Mm. at me, was simply not true. And now that we have greater power than we did as kids, and now that the world in which we live is considerably less shaped and defined by our parents. So the step four is 
design and run a safe, modest test on your assumption. And should you decide to run of the run one of these tests, it'll involve, uh, you know, the first real action in the world of altering your usual conduct for the purpose of seeing what happens that can be reflected, uh, you know, upon the light mm. of your big assumption. So this might involve seeking feedback from a single trusted colleague, um, or trying out new behaviours in a meeting and asking a friend to give you their impression of how others responded. So small changes might lead to bigger changes, but what's most impressive to us is the way that even quite small changes to our big assumptions can lead to quite large changes in our sense of possibilities, the choices and the moves that we can now consider making. So even small changes to our big assumptions can have huge implications for permanently altering our equilibrium. So what you're saying, Frank, in a nutshell, is we need to make assumptions themselves the object of our attention and exploration? You got it. You know, we need people to question their perspective to so-called truths that they hold as unquestionable and actually investigate them. Because what comes out of investigation is a far greater confidence in where you stand. Mm. Excellent, Frank. Um, fascinating topic and uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, and uh, I'm sure our listeners will uh, will gain quite a bit from that. I hope so, Henry. It was an absolute pleasure. Absolutely so for me too, and we'll have you back uh, on a regular basis uh, for the rest of the year. And that was Frank Marinko, Executive Coach, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Listeners.